Hello everyone, it may be late in the evening, but time is still on my side to where I can still do another podcast of History 101. And we are still at signing their lives away, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence by Denise Kiernan and Joseph Diognes. Well, I don't um, believe that we should get tired of listening to the stories of of those who signed their lives away. Why so? Because it all comes down to sacrifice and duty. When you sign your life away, yes, you are taking a risk. And as we have uh, learned from the past three nights, that um, all of the signers, I should say, that, that I've discussed from the last three nights, did sign their lives away by laying everything there was on the line without leaving anything on the table to chance. Do Is it safe to say that we, as everyday people in the modern-day world, could we sign our life away to something? Sure. Is that a bad thing? No. Is it safe to say that we are making sacrifices even in today's world of uncertainty that can be heroic? Yes. Um, you don't have to sign your name on a fancy document to be considered famous but the bottom line is is that our actions are important if we know that they're being done for the right reasons and while yes we can't please everyone we also know that whatever we do must benefit ourselves and others as long as there are um, actions that um, will produ- will produce um, long-term um, positive um, ramifications. So the bottom line is, is that life isn't about pleasing everyone, and our forefathers knew that they couldn't please everyone, but what they knew more, what they knew that was so dear to them was the price that it took to earn, um, not so much earn freedom, but to win freedom from England, the mother country, who had um, put so much uh, pain and suffering on them. It's like Patrick Henry had said years earlier, or I should say around the time of 1775 when he gave that infamous speech at St. John's Bruton Parish Episcopal Church, I don't know what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Well, the answer is obvious. Patrick Henry wanted liberty, but he, but he would not have enjoyed death because death to him would have brought sadness, darkness, knowing that he didn't achieve the opposite. Yes, in his eyes, I mean, he knew that he couldn't live forever, but by having liberty, he knew that he could do whatever it is he you know, he wanted to do as long as he did it responsibly, but without having a dictatorial form of government encroaching upon his daily liberties. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Well, what is the pursuit of happiness all about? Well, to me, it would be um, the right to have freedom of religion, to not be persecuted because I don't adhere to one to one uh, religion knowing that I live in a country where church and state 
are not uh, uh, in unison with one another uh, to where church and state control people's lives. That's what Thomas Jefferson was afraid of more than anything, was the power that church and state had over people's lives. Well, uh, what is the next uh, colony that we are going to be talking about tonight in this podcast uh, session? The colony which we will be discussing, being our fourth colony, is Connecticut. Well, uh, Connecticut um, has been a good one. For starters, um, I, I didn't know this, but it is worth sharing. Connecticut derived from the Mohegan Pequot word known as Long Tidal River, and upon the Long River, referring to the Connecticut River. Well, you know, if you look at Connecticut very carefully on the map, uh, to the north is um, Massachusetts, to the east is Rhode Island, and to the west, part of Connecticut does border uh, New York City. So, uh, part of Connecticut is surrounded by water, um, and uh, the other part of Connecticut is, um, you know, surrounded by, you know, okay, rivers, but also um, in a non, uh, what do you call it, ocean um, water standpoint. But the bottom line is Connecticut uh, does border, um, it does border uh, New York City, and it does border Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Um, does anybody know what... Um, Indian tribes were living in uh, Connecticut um, around the time that the Europeans uh, first explored the area around 1614? Well, the answer is the Mohegans, the Pequots, and the, pa and the Pogasets. I knew about the Pequots, or the Pequots. How, um, I'm sure that's one of two ways that that could be pronounced, but I didn't know about the Mohegans or the Pogasets. Now, it turns out that the English actually were not the first to uh, settle Connecticut, or should I say explore. The Dutch did in 1614. But it turns out that the first English settlers actually arrived in 1633 and settled at what is now known as present-day Windsor, Connecticut. And if I'm not mistaken, I do believe that Windsor, Connecticut is somewhere along the Connecticut-Massachusetts line. However, it's not until three years later, in 1636, that, that a group of Puritans from the Massachusetts Bay Colony, led by a gentleman named Thomas Hooker, established a colony in Connecticut known as Hartford, the present-day capital of Connecticut. And Hartford itself is not far uh, from the Connecticut-Massachusetts line. An easy crossover when you consider Massachusetts and Connecticut bo border one another. Now, were there other colonies established in Connecticut besides the Hartford colony? Yes, uh, most notably the Quinnip Quinnipiac colony to the New Haven colony. And of course, uh, New Haven, uh, Connecticut is 
a, a famous, um, I wouldn't, well, you could call it a well-known uh, city slash town, in large part because a um, Ivy League school is located in that um, vicinity. The answer is simple, Yale University. I'll talk a little bit more about Yale in a little bit. What are some uh, other settlements that I learned that um, English um, settlers um, established in Connecticut? Here we go. Windsor, Weathersfield, Saybrook, and of course Hartford, and of course New Haven. Then there's Fairfield, Guilford, Milford, Stratford, Farmington, Stamford, New London. As a matter of fact, I know um, pretty much all these cities um, because in my primary line of work, I do a lot of business out of those locations. So um, hearing about these names right away, um, I knew exactly um, where these cities were located, and, uh, and that is a good thing. Uh, what I do find interesting briefly about Stratford is that um, William Shakespeare, the famous English playwright, grew up in a place in England called Stratford-on-Avon. Well, how, how do you get a city like that? Well, Stratford is the name of the town he grew up in, but it is on the Avon River. It's interesting to point out that villages in England that where the town is on a river, you get the town name and then the name of the river as well. There's also um, a, another town in England um, that I learned about once uh, called Ross-on-Wye. The town is Ross. It's on the Wye River. Uh, where I live in Virginia um, is just on the outskirts of uh, the capital being Richmond. But um, Richmond uh, derived from um, a town, or should I say a city in England, known as Richmond on the Thames, the famous Thames River. So it is safe to say that many of our um, places in around all 13 colonies uh, not only have, obviously, English origins, but they were perhaps towns and villages that were right on uh, rivers in England. Well, um, what's unique about the year 1662 for Connecticut? Well, in 1662, um, this, all the colonies, or should I say the settlements in Connecticut, especially those settlements I mentioned a moment ago of like Windsor, Saybrook, Hartford, New Haven, uh, New London, uh, Fairfield, Guilford, and the list of, of the others as well, all of those settlements came together as one, in part because um, of a man named John Winthrop. He was able to obtain a charter from King Charles II, and as a result, Connecticut beca became a um, crown colony. In other words, it, the primary three colonies being Saybrook, New Haven, and the Connecticut colony all um, merged under a royal charter, what's called a crown, in order to become a crown colony. So really, Connecticut is officially considered a colony in 1662. Now, what's unique about the year 1701? Well, 
That's the, that's the year that Yale College, of course we now know as Yale University, it was founded. The institution at the time was geared for clergy and civil leaders. And remember this, people, institutions like Yale and Harvard and Princeton, or what was then known as the College of New Jersey, were geared more, more towards seminary learning. After all, being a minister for many years, not just in the 17th and 18th century, but even into a good part of the 20th century, being a minister was, or studying to become a minister was a big deal. Not that it isn't today, but you think about it, when, you grew, when one grew up in the 17th and 18th century, for example, becoming a minister is a very um, high-end demand job. If you want to be a doctor, for example, you, you either uh, become an apprentice, you either uh, study as an apprentice under someone who is already a doctor, but if you really want to study true medicine, then you go over to England. It's the same way with like being a lawyer. If you want to go, if you want to become a lawyer, you go to the uh, Admiralty Court, or the um, not so much the Admiralty Court, but a higher institution of learning in England where you can become a lawyer, or in the case of like, say, Thomas Jefferson, for example, he, when he was at William & Mary, he studied law under Mr. George Wythe, who would go on to become America's first uh, professor of law. So, as for being a minister, that was a high-end demand job where, yes, you could study under a minister, but you were always bound to have ministry teaching at your uh, at many of your uh, early colleges, given that they were only nine um, up until about 1764. Well, Connecticut is known for its uh, waters, especially being that it's on the coast or coast coastal water, and there are roughly about 600 miles of coastline water. Would you say that um, even in today's time that being on water has its advantages? Sure. How about during the colonial era? Was that a, a bigger plus? Absolutely. In Connecticut, given that uh, many towns and villages were on the water, there were a number of booms in shipbuilding to marine transport, to naval support, to seafood production. Seafood production is essential. Think about it. Being on the coast, you can transport those goods to anywhere else in colonial America. You can also transport them to England. You can transport um, seafood, like, say, salted cod, like they did in Massachusetts. They could, be, they could transport that cod to the West Indies and to the Caribbean. And about two decades, I, I found this interesting too, about two decades before 1776, so we're talking about the 1750s, and leading in, in two decades as well before the American Revolution, Connecticut boatyards had launched about, or should I say various boatyards in Connecticut, had launched anywhere from about 100 sloops, schooners, and brigs. So it is very safe to say that Connecticut is having a very big part in um, 
not just making boats, but boats that could be used for essential purposes. And what I mean by essential purposes at this time is that they can be used in the event of a war. Uh, remember two people, if, if, you own, if you have a boat at this time, it's, you're using the boat to conduct official business. You don't have a boat for luxury purposes. You might want to wait till years later on down the road. So when sloops, schooners, and brigs are, um, are produced, they are being produced for business purposes as well as for war purposes, but nothing for luxury. Well, here we are now going to uh, talk about um, the essentials. Uh, and what I mean by the essentials are how many signers from Connecticut signed the Declaration of Independence? I'll give you a hint. The number is between three and five. The answer is four. Now, um, if you were to ask me, um, which signers did I find worth talking about tonight? They were all good. But two in particular struck out in my mind as being the most worthy to talk about. Which, which two are they? Well, I'll read all four of them to you first. But then I will tell you which two here in a moment. The four who signed were Samuel Huntington, Roger Sherman, William Williams, and Oliver Wolcott. The two that I will be discussing tonight in this podcast are Roger Sherman and Oliver Wolcott. Well, Roger Sherman, I had known for, uh, for a long time, I had known that he was on that um, famed Distinguished Committee of Five who drafted the Declaration of Independence document. Of course, Thomas Jefferson was the author, but along with Thomas Jefferson and Roger Sherman are John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and Robert Livingston. Of course, Thomas Jefferson's from Virginia, John Adams, Massachusetts, Benjamin Franklin, Pennsylvania, Robert Livingston of New York. Well, Roger Sherman was born in 1721. True or false, was Roger Sherman born in Connecticut? False. He was born in the neighboring state of Massachusetts. Did Roger Sherman have more than one profession? Yes. However, what was his primary profession starting out? Believe it or not, he was the only cobbler. And what is a cobbler? A shoemaker. He was the only cobbler slash shoemaker or should I say, in the shoemaker profession to sign the Declaration of Independence. Did you know that Mr. Sherman did not receive a true formal education until age 13? He came from humble origins. His father was a farmer, but his father... I hate to say this, I mean, it, it's nothing bad, but remember, some of our forefathers did not have the same kind of access to education as others did. 
Even though Mr. Sherman himself did not receive a formal education until the age of 13, it did not stop him from becoming a successful person. He was an avid reader, and his studies were enhanced by an individual named Samuel Danbar. Who is Samuel Danbar? He's a, re- he's a minister, and where did he go for his education to become a minister? None other than Harvard University. Well, when did um, Mr. Sherman, or, or should I say Roger Sherman, when did he move to Connecticut? In 1741. He was 20 years old at this time, and he moved there after his father's death. The family settled in what is known as New Milford. And because he had um, strong um, mathematical abilities, he became the county surveyor in 1745. Well, uh, Roger Sherman is is a very talented man. He enjoys writing. He also enjoys contributing to journals. He even published an almanac for a number of years. And, uh, well, he may not have published a famous almanac like Benjamin Franklin did. It is still safe to say that by just publishing an almanac in general, it gives someone like him a lot of credibility for down the road. Does anybody know by any chance what almanac Ben Franklin published? The Farmer's Almanac, which is still used to this day. Well, um, by the time Roger Sherman is uh, around 30 or just right after, he finds a second calling or a line of work by chance. What was the second line of work? Well, this was, like I said a second ago, this was by means of chance. Long story short, Mr. Sherman was uh, helping a friend and his friend um, obviously had to go to a lawyer but it turns out that Roger Sherman uh, did a lot of what we would now call investigative work into his friend's uh, matter. In other words, he was trying to assist his friend on something that it turns out Mr. Sherman had a lot of uh, knowledge on that his friend didn't but nonetheless, it's good to have someone um, whom you can turn to for um, expertise in an area that he or she, in, this, in, in those days, being a man, because there was no such thing as a female lawyer or a female paralegal, but nonetheless, it's good to turn to someone who, ha- who would have more knowledge than you yourself might. So long story short, Roger Sherman sought a lawyer for advice on his neighbor's behalf. The lawyer was so impressed with Mr. Sherman's work that the lawyer himself told Roger Sherman to become a lawyer, which he did. And in 1754, Roger Sherman is admitted to the bar. 1754. Well, besides being a lawyer... He also served as a justice of the peace to county judge and by 1755 has joined Connecticut's colonial legislature.
Is he a married man? Uh, the answer is yes. He married his uh, sweetheart um, from Massachusetts, and they had seven children together, but sadly she dies in 1760, and he is left a widower with seven children. Now, I can't imagine being in Roger Sherman's shoes knowing that his wife, whom he had adored for some time, tragically passes away and leaves him with seven children. Well, he and his children moved to New Haven in 1761. He opens a bookstore. And what's great about being a New Haven is that it allows him to establish firm ties with Yale University, not just the school, but with the faculty and students. He even served as treasurer of Yale. He ended up receiving an honorary degree from that university. Did Mr. Sherman remarry? Yes. And what do you know? He and his second wife had eight more had eight children. So Roger Sherman has 15 children from two marriages. He attended the First and Second Continental Congresses from 1774 to 1781 and then did another stint between 1783 to 1784. What was his primary focus on? I mean, you just don't go to Congress just to say, oh, I'm representing my constituents for the heck of it. Well, he focused on finance. He warned about printing too much paper money. I find that interesting. Well, first off, paper money does have its advantages and disadvantages, but I would have to say more disadvantage. You know, paper money it doesn't have the same value as, okay, it might be worth something in Connecticut, but if you took your paper notes to Virginia from Connecticut... It's not going to have the same value. Remember, people, all, every thirteen, every one of the thirteen colonies produced their own, their own currency. And you know, think of that. It's one thing to go from one colony to another, but if you're going to use paper currency, good luck. What would you rather have instead of paper? Of course, not everyone can can afford it or have or has access to it. The answer is easy, silver. As I mentioned from another podcast episode, if you had silver, you were in very good shape. If you had what was called that Spanish millet dollar that could be broken down into one-eighths, you were, um, you were on the uh, high end of not just society, but you were, uh, you, you were doing well. Um, so... Basically, silver is going to have more value than paper money. And no matter where you go, from, say, Virginia to Pennsylvania or Connecticut to New York, that silver is going to have the same value regardless of where you travel. So as for why Roger Sherman was so worried about paper money, well, if you print too much of it, it's not... It, it could lose its value altogether, and when an economic uh, crisis takes place and you have too much of something, 
supply and demand are, are not going to always be on the same page. Well, what, what did Roger Sherman use as an alternative? He preferred higher taxes. In other words, okay, if you want to print something, that's fine, but if you don't raise taxes, then how is revenue going to be collected down the road? So it's like I've said before, there's always a double-edged sword to, um, to matters like this. Well, here's, here's a good question. True or false, was Roger Sherman well-liked by everyone? True. Even Thomas Jefferson himself said that Sherman never said a foolish thing in his life. He voted, he signed, he conquered. He was elected mayor of New Haven in 1784 and served until 1786. And he is the only person to have signed the to have signed all four major articles or not not articles I should say documents. Pardon me. Let me re, let me reword that. Um, four major documents he signed. Does anybody want to know? what the other three were other than the Declaration of Independence. The Articles of Association, the Articles of Confederation, and the U.S. Constitution. Now, why was why is um, Roger Sherman's um, significance years down the road with the Constitution so essential? He established what was called the Great Compromise. And we all know what compromise means. It means that you are willing to um, make modifications on something that you want, but you may not be able to get everything out of it, but you are willing to set aside your differences and basically exchange in what are called trade-offs where you you are willing to agree to something that someone else has and that individual is willing to agree to something that that you have but you work out your differences and take take the good and make it into something that's great the great compromise was this it was what we would call a dual cameral or a dual legislative system the house of representatives being the lower house, would, de would determine, was determined by pro proportion of population. So in other words, congressional districts were established by a proportion of people living in a certain geographical area or within a certain region to, to make up a district that was based on population. The Senate being that upper house would consist of two seats for each state regardless of size. So in other words, the smaller colonies or states, I should say, like Delaware, Maryland, to Rhode Island, and even Connecticut, for example, were worried that, and New Jersey could be a part of this as well. We'll take those five, for example. They were worried that larger states like Virginia, and of course Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies, they were worried that states like Virginia, New York, and perhaps Massachusetts would, um, 
because of how big their states are, would have a greater representation in the Senate, and it would be so domineering to the point that the smaller states would not have a say in anything that was relevant. So it was a very smart move on Roger Sherman's part by giving the upper house, being the Senate, two seats regardless of size. Everybody had an equal say. They had an equal voice. They had an equal chance of compromising. They had an equal chance to do whatever was necessary, not just to function as a government entity, but to function to where work could be done to benefit the good for the people. Well, Roger Sherman was known as the signer who signed everything. It's also safe to say that Roger Sherman didn't didn't miss out on anything. And up until he died in 1793, he was still in public office. He was serving as a U.S. Senator from Connecticut. He lived to be 71 years old. And it is safe to say that he lived a fulfilled life that was um, very successful, not just in signing um, articles that were of um, major significance, but, but by what do you call it, serving his country in the most noble of manner. And remember, people, if it weren't for Roger Sherman, we probably would not have a government that is uh, properly represented. And what I mean by that is that a House of Representatives determined by proportion of population and a Senate consisting of two seats for each state regardless of size So remember, people, thank Roger Sherman for that. Now we're going to be moving on to our next um, signer, who I thought was very um, important to to talk about. Matter of fact, uh, his...